Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Wednesday, May 31st, and I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor Max. How's it going, my friend? Doing pretty well, considering we're in the first melting portion of our humid Canadian, Eastern Canadian summers. Um, so against my better judgment, having a strong beer for the podcast, because it's the coldest thing currently in my apartment, and uh, still early enough removed from the gray and cold seasons that uh, still grateful for the sun and the heat for now. Yeah, I, I don't know what it's like there, but we haven't gotten the humidity so much so uh, in Toronto. It is supposed to jump back down to 14 degrees tonight, so it would be uh, hot days and, and nice sleeps. Let me tell you what it's going to be tonight at the coldest. It's been like in the mid-low 30s today, currently 31, and we're dropping down to a brisk chilly 17 at 4 a.m. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And there's there's no reprieve during the summer summer days just with that humidity, although I know folks in Florida and Arizona will tell us to suck it up. So I got to say we'll enjoy it for now. It is nice being outside. It is nice having shorts. It is nice going out in the morning and just being comfortable. Uh haven't had that in quite a while. So, uh welcome back summer. You know where they love the heat? The city of Miami, uh, our last podcast, we said they were probably going to face the Nuggets in the finals, and they make it so after dropping three straight, after going up 3 nothing. But the streak remains 0-151, and 151, our teams who have lost the first three games of an NBA playoff series. Um, I will pat myself on the back. I said last pod that the Boston Celtics are going to have to win a fourth quarter to win this series. And the only fourth quarter they won all series was a garbage time one in the game four blowout win. But game six, which was close, Miami almost got it. Boston saved by the grace of Derek White. And game seven, I have plenty to say on it. But like the bottom line is the Celtics had a chance at the start of the fourth quarter to still win this game, uh, win this series, get another chance at the finals and make history. And they blew it in less than two minutes, I'd say, and could not get back into it. And that was kind of a microcosm of how the whole game went. Yeah, it was a all-time moment that will fall into the annals of history that never get talked about, the Derek White buzzer-beating, game-winning layup was the second shot in NBA history that was a buzzer-beater when the team was facing elimination in the playoffs. And the only other person to do it was Michael Jordan's The Shot. So a spectacular moment that he followed up with a fantastic performance. Derek White played really well. Uh, starting from game four onwards, really hung in there against Jimmy Butler on the defensive end after they were hunting him in the first three games and made uh, a ton of his open shots. But in game seven, the the pressure dials up and the Heat, who win in all of the margins, were able to just build a lead on the Boston Celtics, not winning in the margins and missing open shots. And that 
I mean, it's a make or miss league. It's a cliche thing to say, uh, but you got to knock down the open shots. Those are less likely to go in in a game of this magnitude. And so the Heat were able to win uh, in, in different ways. And you mentioned it here. Caleb Martin was spectacular and seemingly came out of nowhere in this playoff run, right? A bench player for most of the season. He's never really found a home and has just in, indoctrinated himself into this Miami Heat culture and has turned himself into potentially the, the best player in this series, which is yeah. astonishing and shocking to say that uh, when there's Jimmy Butler, Jason Tatum, and Jalen Brown, who's in line for a big payday after being all-second all NBA team and, and not having the series that him or the organization would have wanted going into these contract talks coming up in the offseason. But yeah, Caleb Martin, he did get a couple votes for Eastern Conference Finals MVP, deservedly so. Uh, and and yeah, I, I'm just fascinated to see if this opens up his career as a as a improved player, like a Jeremy Grant type who who wanted to get a bigger role on another team and stepped in and improved his production on a less successful team. Or if he's going to stick in Miami and this is more of a flash in the pan, uh, I guess we'll get a greater sense of it in the next round here in the NBA Finals against the Denver Nuggets. Yeah, he certainly got my half of the Sports Next Door vote for Eastern Conference MVP Finals. Um, yeah, like you said earlier, the Heat hit a lot more open shots and I don't think Caleb Martin missed an open shot this game, which is impressive enough if you're just a spot-up shooter, a guy who sits in his spot and catches and shoots the open three. But he was creating his own shot all night, and he was fantastic at attacking the open space, using fakes, taking advantage of a Celtics defense that was often bumbling in transition. And every time he set himself up with for that open look, um, it, it just went down like that was a superstar level performance by him on just ridiculous efficiency and yeah it was partly the Celtics missing open look threes like I think they did hit them at below the amount you'd expect um but that was also shot selection like the I think Shaq said on uh, the after game panel, if we miss 10 straight threes in the first quarter, I'm saying to my teammates, like next guy who takes a three, I'm going to punch you in the face. And like the Celtics, someone needed a bit of that mentality, like especially there in the third and fourth when it was like, keep shooting the open threes. But a lot of the threes they took were not open. And the couple, the one or two, I think like Derek White hit one like nice contested three as opposed to whatever open better looks he got. And like that just encouraged it all the more. Um, I like that and the inability to get stops, to get back in transition uh, off of turnovers and such, I thought were the main downfalls of the Celtics. Second would be Tatum and Brown's play. Tatum with the injury on the first play of the game it was pretty clearly affecting him throughout the game. He was good for a spot-up three. He was one level better than a pylon on defense, and he could with great difficulty get a bucket in transition. Uh, and I, I think he had one 
roll or like cut to the net off a screen um and a couple assists like it it felt like that just put a ceiling on the celtics offense like there was a there was a certain urgency and hustle uh they needed to match what the heat were doing and tatum was in a state where he couldn't bring it and it's a five-man game so if one guy's reduced the whole team's reduced and like of all the talk about Missoula's post-game comments, that's kind of the one I'd maybe quibble with the most. Like, I think it was at the start of the fourth quarter, he said, like, he just needs to play through it. And Tatum said something very similar in his post-game uh, conference, post-game press conference, like saying it was a factor, but I just needed to get through it and be better. And I couldn't. And like, I think someone needs on the bench in decision-making capacity needed to be able to take a sober second look and like really question that and not leave it up to the player in that particular situation based on what I saw in the game. And then on the Jalen Brown half, um, he drove a lot of their offense and like was the most, con or like tied with Derek White, as I'd say, as like most consistently uh, creating shots. I thought he was fine on defense, but he will be talked about a lot. Uh, I alluded to that start of the fourth quarter, and like 80% of it goes on Jalen Brown's shoulders. Like two turnovers, uh, an offensive foul, and like a really boneheaded three in transition when it was still tight after the Heat had missed a bad three and the Celtics were running it in transition. Um, that like four or five minute stretch, I, like I, I think 80% of that you can lay on his shoulders. So yeah, that's, I think like the idea that you throw out the logic of we were going to sign this player to a max contract, super max contract, and then they had five terrible minutes of basketball. And now we're rethinking that decision is, stretched and going to be wrong more often than not but it's certainly a discussion that's going to be had around the media and probably in Celtics front office yeah especially with the contract that he's in line for and the new CBA restrictions that are going to make cap management and sal salaries less flexible uh and and it's just tough to explain or uh reason with your management on on why you have two contracts that make up two-thirds of your of your salary in this day and age with how punitive these uh, new restrictions can be and so yeah there will be important conversations had now with the celtics moving forward about what they're going to potentially do next um miami capitalized very well on the tatum injury they switched a ton of screens the most they did in the series because they knew once Tatum was down uh, a leg that there was no one on this Boston team that could get past their perimeter defense on every occasion. And so they just kept them in front, forced up uh, tougher, longer possessions, still gave up some open shots, but those weren't falling because Boston was struggling to get easier looks at the rim. It was devious. Like the the Celt the Heat would just constantly force the Celtics to make one more pass, just yeah. knowing that like as long as the ball and didn't end up in the paint and ended up on the three point line, like 
you're playing mind games with them at that point and they missed a lot more of them than they made yeah and and it's all credit to to the heat and eric spolster what he's been able to do now consistently for a number of years and i'm really really excited to see spolster versus michael malone here in the nba finals two coaches that have made some really great in-game adjustments and have some top tier talented players that they can go to when things get tough I am fascinated to see what Miami throws at Nikola Jokic because Adebayo, fantastic defensive center. He gives up a lot in the in the Libby's category, uh, in in the pounds, in the paint. And and Cody Zeller, again, gave them some good minutes, but they went away from him as the series went along. And I don't think you can trust him for more than 10 minutes and five fouls on Nikola Jokic and just try and wear him down. And beyond that, they have no size. And so they are going to get dwarfed by, by an Aaron Gordon, by a Michael Porter Jr. Uh, so really, I'm, I'm just so fascinated to see how they're going to deal with the size of Denver versus Boston. And then, of course, the actions and the continuity that this Nuggets teams get. They're just going to get very good shots. Uh, and Miami's still going to be in scramble mode starting uh, tomorrow night when when the finals kick off. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a zone in the world that can stop this Nuggets offense. Like the the low high post elbow quarterbacking of Jokic, and then the between the cutting and the open look shooting this team has and like everyone is a playmaker like at a pretty decent starting point guard level uh at least like six seven down the roster it, so it really becomes about one-on-one -on -one defense winning your man-on-man matchups and slowing the nuggets down as much as you can and as you said like when you look at how no one in the league matches up against Jokic, but the Heat don't come particularly close. And I think point guard defense is something they really struggled with against the Knicks and Brunson. Murray, a different kind of player than Brunson, but like as great as Gabe Vincent and Kyle Lowry have been for this Heat team, I, I said it last week, I just don't see them being able to put even the kind of defense Dennis Schroeder was able to put on Jam mall murray and like i can see him being pretty unstoppable throughout this series uh or like at least forcing more help and getting that passing going and we've seen the nuggets hit those open threes at like a way greater clip than the celtics were able to which so i don't think the heat will be able to count on that either i, I just like other than Butler picking it up offensively, Bam fixing what went wrong offensively, and Martin continuing that like beyond belief offense, Hero coming back, giving you something and gelling perfectly, not upsetting any of the new chemistry or style found on that team. Like if the Heat can do that, at least they can match the Nuggets offense. They can make it a dogfight, go close, and then maybe like you just need five minutes of really good, like individual defensive efforts and like that's the only way I can see the Heat winning this series and at least like doing that to gain some momentum. Uh, last thing for me, the Nuggets haven't lost at home yet. So game one and two in Denver after the Heat play seven, just another card lining up in the Nuggets' favor. 
Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna see the rest versus rust in in full effect uh, on Thursday night, and and I just want to give some love to Miami, even though I am gonna pick Denver in this series, um, in 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 five games. Uh, I think Miami, the key for them to stay in this series and and put some pressure on Denver, is gonna be the the pressure they apply on the rim, right? Jimmy Butler is really great at getting free throws and attacking the paint. And what Denver doesn't have that the Celtics did have is a rim protector who mm-hmm. lives above the rim, right? With Robert Williams, Jokic can play average level defense, but he's not an eraser in the way that some of these other players are. And Aaron Gordon, KCP, Bruce Brown, uh, Michael Porter Jr. have all done admirable work on the defensive end, but they haven't had to face a guy like Jimmy Butler. It's been more of a power presence from They had to face LeBron. LeBron James. Yeah, it's been more of a power presence from LeBron. They had LeBron. to face Kevin Durant. Like, and, they've, and Devin they've faced yeah. some pretty fucking good scorers I, so far. Yeah, I think Jimmy Butler, though, brings a different type of attack from those mm. guys where he is less brute force and more of, I don't want to use the word dirty, but like grit force. Yeah. Where it, he is he's he's going to... Yeah, like he's if Patrick gonna... Beverly was an offensive god, it would look very similar to Jimmy <laughs> Butler's yeah. game. Yeah, like Jimmy takes these kind of fallaway shots, uh, which you could compare to Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. But what he mixes in with it is the footwork around the rim. He's gonna grab your arm as he's driving down the lane. He's gonna f- snap his head back and draw calls and and just frustrate defenses in in different ways. And and he's gonna talk the whole time and and tell you what you're doing wrong. So. I'm fascinated to see how they're going to handle that matchup without an eraser on the on the defensive end. And then the other piece of it is Caleb Martin, right? If he arrives in the same way they did in the Eastern Conference Finals, do they have that secondary win defender and per- perimeter defense to handle him? And then Bam Adebayo. Uh, the Heat have been trying to get him going in some of these series. This is a matchup that if he can get the ball around the elbow or or around the extended side there in the post i think if he faces up he can blow by Jokic at times so it is going to be interesting to see how much they run bam at Jokic because there's that balance of oh we want to tire Jokic out on the defensive end but then if bam's working on offense then you might tire him out on the defensive end handling Jokic. so that back and forth is going to be really really fascinating to see uh how how both teams manage that all right, that's kicking off tomorrow, so that'll be the evening that this airs. Looking forward to that. Uh, any more basketball stuff? Yeah, just wanted to shout out two Toronto Raptors coaches are on the move. It is going to be a very different looking coaching staff and system, I think, for the Raptors next season. And we're going to see some familiar faces on the schedule quite frequently. I think they'll play Milwaukee yeah. <laughs> and Philadelphia a total of seven times throughout the season next year. And so uh, Adrian Griffin headed to the Milwaukee Bucks as their next head coach. Um, kind of a shocking surprise. I really thought it was going to be Nick Nurse. Mm-hmm. But that's because Nick Nurse is headed to the Philadelphia 76ers. And so it's just another successful candidate that has come out of this Toronto Raptors coaching tree now that has spread farther and wider than some circles would care to admit right uh we've got we've got Chris Finch in in Minnesota and Dwayne Casey of course in Detroit and a couple of others that I just can't rattle off the top of my head but 
it it we're gonna see what sort of impact they're gonna have in a different system. It's two guys that you better believe are micromanagers and and gonna have to have a high degree of interpersonal skills as well to manage uh, a Giannis and manage an Embiid, but they might be exactly what the doctor ordered for two teams that uh, weren't able to get over the hump this year and have two all-world talents that seem to be pretty rigid in their style of play when things come down to it and don't have that flexibility of a team like a Miami or Boston or Denver that we saw this season, at least in the playoffs. That would also be such a fun playoff series. Oh, yes. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. But but first, we got to enjoy this year's finals. <laughs> All right. I'm excited to get to the French Opens, but like take your time here with hockey. Yeah, well, speaking about Toronto hirings, this time uh, we have a new management staff coming into the Toronto market for the first time in a while. Like you think about it, there's been some stability in in Toronto across all of their teams, right? With with Kyle Dubas being there for five years and then two years before that as the AGM with Masai Ujiri now has been here since I think 2013. Uh, and then Ross Atkins and, uh, and, and that staff in the Blue Jays have now been a around, I think, since 2017 or 2018. So all of them significant long-term duration management teams with plans and visions that they've executed over, over the last while. And it's just, going to be something new here in in Toronto with Brad Living officially announced as a general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs stepping in it seems to me like Keith is actually going to stick around uh based on what has been said and Max I uh I had it pulled up here on Twitter I just wanted to run you through a couple of key transactions in the history of Brad Living. he traded Dougie Hamilton to or he traded for Dougie Hamilton in exchange for a first, a second, and a second back in 2015 with the Boston Bruins. Uh, he traded for Mike Smith in 2017 for Chad Johnson, Brandon Hickey, and a third-round pick. Uh, he also traded for Elias Lindholm and Noah Hannafin from Carolina in exchange for Michael Furlan, Dougie Hamilton, and the signing rights to Adam Fox. That one, that one seems tough. He traded, he traded for Milan Lucic at twelve point five percent retained for four years and an Edmonton third round pick in exchange for James Neal, which he won definitively. Other notable transactions here, as I flick through, uh, traded for Nikita Zadorov uh, for a third round pick in with Chicago in twenty twenty one. He acquired Dan Vladar for a. 21 third round pick to Boston in 2021 and then his uh one of his other bigger deals uh acquired Tyler Toffoli from Montreal in exchange for Tyler Pitlick Emil Heineman a first and a fifth round pick which I think was a a steal of a deal and then of course the largest trade of them all trading for Huberto and Mackenzie Weger and a first-round pick and Cole Schwint from Florida in exchange for Matthew Kachuk and a Calgary fourth-round pick, which as we take a look at the NHL finals here, Stanley Cup playoff finals, it looks like he lost that one. The Kachuk and the Florida Panthers are uh, going to be headed to Vegas to take on the Golden Knights in game one of that series in short order here, looking forward to the Stanley Cup finals. But Brad Shee living, I think the... General sentiment is that 
he has a little bit more snarl and a little bit more expertise than obviously Dubas had when he started out. He's going to win and lose some trades, but he's not afraid to make a big move or or make a move that he thinks is going to work out. The biggest thing that Dubas was always so effective at that we're going to have to get a read on with Brad is, is July 1st, right, with free agency. Dubas, for the most part, was really solid with his player signings. Don't know about the goalie aspect of it, uh, but I'm fascinated to see True Living's not going to have the cap space to go out and spend big. So where is he going to find the the margin, guys? Uh, yeah, just looking forward to a new vision for the Leafs. Something had to change at this point, and uh, and yeah, we'll see how how different the roster looks now with a with a new GM at the helm. I'm optimistic. One that it's a lot more than the GM making those small free agent signings and it really goes out to the scouting uh, portion of the Toronto Maple Leafs organization, which, as you mentioned, have done a pretty fantastic job with those like sub $3 million uh, signings over the last few years. And second, I would say Florida won the Kachuk trade. Calgary had lost the moment he had asked to be traded and said he didn't want to stay with the team. Uh, so when your hands are forced in that type of situation, you do what you can. And mm. I thought he handled himself fine. Uh, though clearly, as you said, Florida has won that trade at this point. So yeah, we'll a new era that I hadn't realized quite how many of those trades happened at his helm. Uh, and certainly makes me start anticipating as a Leafs fan. Yeah, one of the safest job security markets is being a hockey general manager in Canada. Mm. (laughs) They they stay on for a long time. So let's talk Roland Garros, shall we? No? I have no idea. Oh, you're supposed to go, hey. They do it all the time. It's so weird. I probably butchered it a little. Well, yeah, no, I I don't think I've watched the French Open in a couple of years now. So get me up to date. Yeah, I I rattled off some players' names last episode at the end, but we were on a time crunch, so I didn't really get into what I was thinking about for each player. So now that we have some time, I thought I'd just go through the list of names I'm watching and the storylines and things I have in mind for each of those names. So right at the top is Novak Djokovic, uh, currently sitting tied with Rafael Nadal for the most Grand Slams ever won on the ATP side of things. As I think the favorite to win this tournament, um, without Nadal playing in it, he has, and like with having won the Australian Open, your first impression is that he has a very good chance. You look at how he didn't win the two Masters Clay events. You look at a couple of the smaller losses. And you wonder if this is maybe like influenced a little by what we're seeing with Nadal not being able to play. You wonder like if we're seeing a dip early. You wonder if there's any rust from not being able to play the Sunshine Double and just not having been on the court that much. Um, but just when he's been so consistent and the rest of the field is so green in terms of Grand Slam victories, like it's hard to take that away. I, I think 
the narrative has pretty definitively shifted to already considering him like the greatest if he wins this one in Nadal's backyard without Nadal present it's going to be very reminiscent for Nadal fans of what Djokovic fans were feeling uh, about 14 15 months ago around the time of that Australian Open um, but Nadal has alluded like he's not retired we're we're gonna see more tennis out of Nadal so there are still a few more chapters to be written at the end of that book but just anytime there's a Grand Slam right now that is the first and foremost story uh that race to see who can rack it up uh in his half of the draw though is one Carlos Alcaraz so they would meet in the semifinals if they were to go and Alcaraz like the only player left in the draw I believe um who's like under 35 outside of Djokovic I, it's just Warinka. I can't remember if Warinka's still in I think he probably is but like brackets on Warinka, Alcaraz is the only player in this draw who's won a grand slam other than Djokovic it's a notable asterisk that that was the most wild card of the grand slams and it's one that Djokovic wasn't present at so for Alcaraz to take the next step in hype when you've accomplished so much already as a teenager um the world is going to expect unreasonable things of you and so, so like it sounds bizarre to say like this is what he needs to do like for his legacy for the type of player that people are building him out to be already uh, but it really is that's where he's at like this is the next step to start being a proven factor at Grand Slams. Um, and he's got a tough draw. So he won today in the second round. He is going to face no, uh, Denis Shapovalov in the third round. You never really know what you're going to get there. But the fourth round uh, winner of that match will face the winner between Cam Nori and Lorenzo Musetti. Cam Nori has beat Alcaraz on clay before, and Musetti is a pretty dangerous second option there. Uh, will be for Nori as well. And then after that, I believe Alcaraz would be slated to face Stefano Tsitsipas if the Greek is able to win his way to there. Um, the French Open, one of the two Grand Slam finals that Tsitsipas has reached so far. And like, just to touch on him briefly it, it's been a bit of a rough start he picked it up I think at his first semi-final to a Masters 1000 event in Rome this year um you make a deep run here and like all of that's forgotten you make it out of your half and you're probably the favorite to win the final so a lot to step up to for Sitsi Pass and the other big name in the first half of the draw, oh, Andre Rublev. We talked about him like getting over the hump of winning his first Masters 1000 event earlier this year. Um, now the bigger, more looming curse for him, 0-7 in Grand Slam quarterfinals. Um, it was like maybe the most heart-wrenching moment for me like of the tennis media last year watching him cry when he realized he was going to lose in the quarterfinals at the U.S. Open last year and if he makes it to the quarterfinals this year it's slated to be Djokovic right now uh, so that will be a tough eighth try likely for Rublev if both players make it there 
one more note on Djokovic, just in the second round today, he was beyond fantastico. Like his opponent came out and played what the announcers were calling some of the best tennis of his career. Uh, he had like 11 forced unforced errors in a game mat set that went to tie break. He was precise. He was brutal. He was like brilliant with these backhand slices that had a low trajectory, crazy amounts of spin and depth and power. Uh, after getting broken early, he just made it inevitable that he was going to break back. And Djokovic still had all, held on, came out and like punched him in the nose in the tie break and was able to take it. And you saw that he just like stole the soul a little because he bagged him in the next set and was able to get through the third with a bit of difficulty, but never letting it get too, too close, uh, going up a double break and giving himself some margin for error. Um, so I talked at the start about Djokovic not having as much experience and there may be being a bit of a rust factor this year at the French, but when you can play matches like that, which are sub three hours and against a very, very high level of tennis and you get a rest day, that's kind of best of both worlds right now. Um, so it's in that sense, like a terrifying benefit of being the kind of player who brings out the best of your opponents. Um, if you can use that as a whetstone for yourself. All right, the bottom half of the draw, sitting at the top in the number five seed is Holger Rune, another very young player with probably unreasonable expectations being placed on him this early in his career. Oh, but like, He's been to three Masters 1000 finals now, two of them happening on clay, um, some smaller level victories. Uh, he's really bolstered his stock in the month and a half of the clay season. And with the seeding, he has a lot of expectations on him. It, so far, he's through two rounds. I think he's slated to face some Americans later in the fourth and quarterfinals, like Tommy Paul and Taylor Fritz are sitting in that portion of the draw. It's just consistency. Like we saw some issues against Rublev, get letting the emotions get the better of him and not really game planning and shot selecting as well as you'd like. And you wonder how that's going to go over five sets for him. Um, but he's been labeled a potential finalist out of that second half. Uh, the other guy, also of Scandinavian descent, um, with those kind of expectations would be Kasper Rudd. Really, his breakout came last year at Roland Garros, even though Rafa kind of ran him over in the finals, just getting there, a massive step forward and a massive achievement for any player. And now he has to defend that. Um, so... That's the expectation, nothing less, no monsters in his half of the draw. Uh, it's been a bit of a topsy-turvy season for him so far. Less success than you'd like to see at the Clay Masters, so we'll see what he can do in the biggest tournament. Uh, Zverev also sitting in this half of the draw. He played some of the best tennis in, of his career against Alcaraz in the quarterfinals and against Rafa before he got injured in the semifinals. Uh, he's been slowly rehabbing back, still doesn't isn't having the success he had prior to that injury. Uh, so you wonder what being on this these grounds where it originally happened will mean for him and his level of play. Uh, last note, Daniel Medvedev, 
number two seed in the tournament and for my money the best player in the world so far in 2023 loses his first round matchup second round match no i'm pretty sure yeah it was the first round against Seboth, Sebosh, the Brazilian, a really inspired effort from his opponent. I, just that phenomena of players really stepping up against the best players in the world. Other than the double faults, which were like really bad and like 15 over five sets or something, I thought Medvedev played fine. His opponent just played better. So we have to put off the Clay Vedev narrative for another year. Um, but now this guy has stolen the number two seed draw and gets a fairly easy time of it um he hasn't played yet he'll he plays again tomorrow so definitely a small thing to keep your eye on and see if it was a one trick pony or there's more to the or that's the beginning of a cinderella-esque run and yeah so not a ton of tennis match analysis but those are the things i have in mind looking at certain names uh in this draw that starts out with 256 players uh so hopefully it gives your eyes something to focus on very awesome well thanks for the breakdown max i'm gonna have to tune into a couple of matches i think i saw they were playing it at the office so when i am there tomorrow i'm sure i'll get nice. a couple of quick looks over uh as we work out throughout the day um and i think that's going to cap it for this podcast i don't have anything remaining here just that i hope uh the arrival of the summer weather isn't too much for folks and that everyone is enjoying themselves i hope they had a great memorial day weekend last weekend for our friends down south and uh, as we get here into the stanley cup and nba finals it's sure to be an awesome next two weeks uh, and then we're really into the dog days of summer, which I uh, I cannot wait for. And Max, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you again next week as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, peak sports going on right now. Cannot wait for it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Sports Next Door signing out. You get to the station, there's this crazy sound. Hey, man, this ain't no fishing town. Yeah, they're fishing, and that ain't all, and they're all